All right, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be finishing up this Mark 10, first 12 chapters there. Turn to Mark chapter 10. All right, Father, I just ask you, Lord, you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit's saying and, and what you have to say about divorce, remarriage, and just ask you to help make my teaching clear, the teaching from your Word, make your Word clear to all of us, and give us hearts to uh, understand it, and if need be, Lord, be able to share it with others in a, in a good way. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. So Mark chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 12. And Jesus arose from thence and cometh unto the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, as his custom was, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? When he answering, answered and said unto them, well, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered or allowed to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Well, it's for the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. So whether you know it or not, what our church holds to is, I think most people know it, is the permanence view of marriage. And it is not in the majority. It's not held by most conservative evangelical Christians even. And so it's not hard to find out there. You can find books, tapes, tracts. You can find people that will disagree with the view that I'm going to present tonight. So I've got written up here. I don't know if everybody, can everybody kind of more or less see this? So there's four, basically four, some people will say three, but four positions on divorce and remarriage. And of course, the first position, which you're going to find in most liberal churches that don't hold the word of God high at all, that's the anything goes so you can divorce, literally, I've got books, and it's written by quote-unquote Christian authors, and how they justify it all, they, you can do anything. You can, you can divorce for any reason, yes, and you can remarry for literally any reason. You don't have to have any justification. The second view is the Erasmian view. Erasmus started this um, during the Reformation, and this is the predominant view right now in Christianity so, for instance, John MacArthur holds to it, uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, it's in the Westminster Confession, and there's a lot of other prominent preachers and teachers today in churches that would hold to this. So, on divorce, they would say, yes, but it's for adultery and desertion. People that hold to this view, those are the two, generally, those are the two reasons why, biblical reasons why. In remarriage, they will say, it's for the so-called <clears throat> innocent party. So, and that's what most people hold to today. Then the patristic view, by patristics it means the early church fathers. The early church fathers, they would say divorce, yes, but only for adultery. And on remarriage, they said no. No remarriage though. 
and that's right down the line. Uh, the permanence view, what we're going to teach tonight, uh, no divorce and no, re that was an easy one to remember. No divorce, no remarriage. And that's traditionally what we've, we've taught here at Shelbyville. That's what Brother Hamilton's taught. Um, and so the thing is, though, if you hold any of those views, you think about it, if you hold any of those views except for the first one, it's not like the door's wide open for divorce biblically. So, um, you know, you really only have the only grounds they're given for divorce are adultery and desertion. So the question you would have to ask yourself then, take out that first viewpoint, is abuse a biblical grounds for divorce? Somebody says, well, my husband is abusing me. Or wife, it can go either way. Abusing me or the children, beating me up every time I come home, gets drunk, beats me up. Is that grounds for divorce? Anyone? No, it's not grounds for divorce. I don't think that's grounds that you've got to stay in the house and get yourself beat up every time you come home. I mean, if, if I knew somebody that was in a situation like that, I would do something to help them get out of the, that situation. But that's not the same as you're going to divorce the person. That doesn't solve anything. But I don't, I don't see where somebody has to go home every night and get abused, so I wouldn't go along with that. So what about incompatibility? Does that fall? That falls under that first category, but it doesn't fall under the rest of them. We just don't get along. I want to be happy. And it's funny. So there's this guy's blog. It's the only blog I check out, Christian blog. His name's Tim Challies, and he just so happened to have an article today on his blog about this guy is going out to lunch with somebody else he knows, and the guy starts telling him, he says, look, I'm a Christian, but my wife, I just, I don't like her. We just don't get along, and I want to be happy. And he's telling him, I'm, gonna, I'm going through the process of divorcing her. And this guy tells him, he says, you know, you're a Christian, you've been baptized, all that. And the guy's like, yeah. He says, I'm just going to tell you. He says, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you go through with what you're going to go through, he says, I think you may be happy, and you may be happy even for the rest of your life, happily ever married. He goes, but when you shut your eyes and die, you are going to wake up unhappy. Because he couldn't give a biblical grounds for that if you're a Christian. No way. And there, there's no question if you're saying you're a Christian and you believe the Bible. I think he was being honest with the guy. And he says, look, I'll send you a book. Call me anytime you want to. I would recommend you read the book of Ephesians. You know what he said? He says, I never heard from that guy again. Never heard from you. And that's sad. It really is. So incompatibility. What about drug addiction or alcoholism? You got a mate that's that way. Is that grounds for divorce? And a lot of people think it is. You got somebody you're married to who's a heroin addict, taking all your money and spending it on that. But I would say no. What about a prison sentence? You got a married to somebody, they got 10, 20 life sentence. And I'm telling you, that happens all the time. I have guys from prison. I had a guy come up to me last night and I was loaded for bear because I've been studying this stuff. And it's funny, he's like, I, like, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, well, what do you need to talk to me about? Well, he's like, you know, my wife, it's a long story, I won't get into it all, but basically uh, she's divorced and remarried, but he doesn't want that to be the case. And I said, look, went through the verses with him. I said, you know, that, you're, still, you're still one flesh. He goes, I want her back. He wants her back. She's treated him pretty bad. So anyways, I said, well, you know, God will restore your marriage. He can do that. So we'll talk about that next week when I go back. And so what about the question of people will say, well, what if they got married, both of them were unsaved and they got married? So does that mean their marriage isn't valid before the Lord? Well, let's look at it this way. If you're going to look, say that somebody, well, all this happened before I got saved, divorced, remarried, whatever you want to say. Well, if an if a unsaved married couple came in here and they got saved, 
Would we say, look, you all need to go through a marriage ceremony now. And all these children you had because you weren't saved, now that you've gotten saved, they were all illegitimate. You wouldn't say that, would we? So I'm saying there's the grounds for divorce and remarriage has nothing to do with whether you got married when you were unsaved or divorced and remarried. That's just not the grounds biblically. You wouldn't, you wouldn't look at it that way. So there's three things that we established last week. And so the first one that we establish is that the one flesh union that's created in marriage is permanent until death. So we're here in Mark 10, and when the Pharisees came to Jesus in Mark 10 too, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? So they asked the exact same question. So you have the same account over in Matthew 19, except Matthew 19, 3 adds a little bit more on there. And it says there, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Is what they ask over in Matthew 19, 3. And what was Jesus' answer? In both cases, look down in verse 6. This is his answer, Mark 10, 6. He says, well, from the beginning it, God, of creation, God made male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father, mother, and cleave to his wife. They too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So his answer to that question is what? We talked about this last week. It's a resounding no. He's saying, no, it's not lawful for you to get married. You can't do that. It's never God's will. So he's saying God has joined them together as an indivisible unit in verse 8. So they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, he says in verse 8, but one flesh. So how does God do that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how he makes people one flesh. And the Bible says it's a mystery. But somehow God supernaturally joins two people together. We said last week that it's like he uses a supernatural gorilla glue. Because it can't be dissolved in any way. It can't be divided except for one reason, and that is by death. So what God has joined together, nothing can put asunder by any man is what it says. Can't ever be separated. Can that one flesh union ever be separated, really? No more than you can be separated from your heart. Because when that happens, you're dead. At death, you and your heart will part, maybe. They take it out, you're gone. That's how much the two, the couple is together in God's eyes. No more than you could be separated from your heart and live. That's the way it is. So you may object. Somebody might object and says, well, if God commands not to put asunder a marriage, then it may be possible. But I'm saying it's not in God's eyes. The reason we know that 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 can never be put asunder. You know how we know that? Look in verses 11 and 12, because Jesus goes on to say that whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, because that one flesh union is there, what happens? They commit adultery. That can only be true as if they are one flesh permanently. All right? Can we see that? It's the same with verse 12, if you read both of those. So listen, today's marriage vows, and a lot of people have changed them, haven't they? There's a lot of people that don't say the old-fashioned marriage vows anymore, right? Because the old-fashioned marriage vows would say for richer or poorer in sickness or health, for better or worse, forsaking all others, till death do we part. And that's a vow each person's making to the other person. So let's look at it this way. And Brother Hamilton used to talk about this, but it's true. I can't control when I make a vow to you and you make a vow to me. I can't control if you're going to keep that part of the vow, can I? But I can control whether I do or not. 
And once you make that vow, because in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage. The next thing he does, he goes into talking about vows and let your yes be yes and your no be no. So just because somebody else runs off and deserts you or cheats on you or whatever, we have to stay committed, don't we, to the vows we make if we're in here and we're married. So for better or for worse. And let me ask you, what could be worse than your spouse running around on you with somebody else? So I know of a woman... She's not a part of this church. I know of a woman that I've worked for. It's been a while, but her husband, I mean, I've never seen anybody more devoted to her husband. And through the process when I was working there, cheated on her, ran around openly, left her, divorced her, treated her. I don't know if he still does or not, but to me, I would be like, treat you treat her like she's a two-year-old. I'd be like, but I'm telling you, from her side, I don't know where all she's at with her Christianity, but I've never heard her say a disparaging word about him. Never remarried. She stayed faithful to her vows. I'll tell you, I respect that. That could not have been easy. And I know it hasn't been easy for this woman. Very difficult. But that's what God's called us to, isn't it? Amen. Things aren't always easy, are they? So the second thing we talked about is initiating a divorce is never lawful because Jesus here in Matthew 10, 9, he expressly forbids anybody from initiating a divorce. Look in verse 9. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And we said people are trying to put the words in the wrong order there. They're trying to say what man has put together. They act like man has put it together. The Bible says God has joined two people, whether they know it or not. He has joined them together. And they want to say, what man has put together, let God put his stamp of approval and divide it. And it doesn't work that way. They're reading these verses backwards. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Right? So we said, it is a command that is not a request. They ask, is it lawful? Jesus says, is it lawful? He says, let not. No man can do that. He couldn't be clearer about it. No, it's not lawful. So what I want to do today that we didn't do last week, because you never know. I mean, you could be in a discussion tomorrow. You may have it coming up, but we need to look at the verses. There's not that many of them, and it helps to look at them. Last week, I think I pretty much quoted everything. So I'd like to look at them. So we look here as far as is initiating a divorce lawful. So let's read again verses 11 and 12 here in Mark. Whosoever shall put away his wife, he says, and marry another, commits adultery against her. In verse 12, and if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. And if you would, turn over to Luke 16. And this is the only place Luke talks about divorce and remarriage. Luke 16, 18. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Whosoever putteth away his wife, Luke says, and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband, that person commits adultery. So that person may never have been married before. But if he marries somebody that has been put away, what does it say? He's committing adultery. It's like the two of them had never been divorced. He thinks that's okay, but it's not. That's what Jesus is saying there. And then if you would turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, is initiating a divorce. It's never lawful. 
So Matthew 5, 31, it says, It has been said, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So he's referring back again. We looked at it last week, Deuteronomy 24, when he says that. He says, that's what's written back there. Moses wrote that for the hardness of your hearts. But look what he says in verse 32. But I, I the Lord, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Now, I'm going to say right here, we don't have any remarriage. There is no remarriage spoken of in these two verses. All it does is reaffirm that marriage after divorce is adultery. So we have right here, even for somebody that is the quote-unquote innocent party, they are committing adultery to marry somebody that is divorced. That's what it says. Look in verse, so take, let's take the exception clause out. The saving for the cause of fornication, and it's saying, Whosoever shall put away his wife causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So that wife, she may be innocent. He's saying that man causes her, but nonetheless, she commits adultery. Isn't that what it says? So the person, if you're going to, let's just take the traditional, the Erasmian exception clause there and say that that's talking about adultery. I don't think that's what that refers to, but let's just say it does. So he's saying that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Well, if somebody's already committed adultery, and that's why he's put her away, he can't cause her to do it. So there's, no, there's nothing in this verse, these two verses, about remarriage. And it pretty clearly says that you put away your wife, and somebody marries her, you've caused her to commit adultery, and whosoever at the end, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced does what? That's whosoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. There's no remarriage allowed there whatsoever. Do you guys see that? No remarriage allowed. So, turn over to Matthew 19, the next place we have it. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. We'll deal with the exception clauses here in just a little bit. So Matthew 19, and it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished his sayings, he departed from, this is the same as Mark's account, Matthew's version. He departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And it says, Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read? that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, 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 <laughs> and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, he says it again, let not man put asunder. And they say unto him, well then why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another commits adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away does commit adultery. And his disciples said unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's good not to marry. And he said unto them, well, all men can't receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. 
For there are some eunuchs which were born so from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So when Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together and let not man put asunder in verse 6, the Pharisees understood when he said that he is denying them any divorce. They understood that. And that's why they come back and ask that question there in Matthew 19 and verse 7. He said, well, then why? You're saying no divorce? That's why they're asking this question. And well, why didn't Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And Jesus says he had to correct their theology. He had to tell them, look, Moses never gave a quote unquote command, never gave such a command. He just says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed. That's what that word suffered means there. He permitted or allowed you to put away your wives. Because here, by the time of Jesus, the Jews, the people of Israel, understood this Deuteronomy 24 as giving active permission to divorce. And all Moses was doing was regulating remarriage. He was not commanding anybody to divorce anyone. All he's doing, if <laughs> we won't turn to it again, he is re-regulating remarriage. No command for divorce. So he's saying, look, Moses knew it was going to happen. He knew what you all were going to do. And he only wrote that permission and regulated the remarriage, basically saying, hey, you, do, you put your wife away, give her a writing of divorcement. Well, then she can legally remarry, so to speak. But she does that and she can't come back to you. That's what he was saying, because she's been defiled. And that's interesting, too. Why would she be defiled if there still wasn't a one flesh union that took place? So there's no verse. There is no verse in the entire Bible, not one that commands divorce. There is not a verse in the entire Bible that commands divorce. So verse 9 there, it's where that exception clause is. It appears to give one exception to the prohibition of divorce. And like I said, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But if that was the case, so if our Lord was really saying there's an exception to what I'm saying here, don't you think the Apostle Paul would have understood that that's what he meant? I think he would have, wouldn't he? And so turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. But somehow Paul missed it, if that's what Jesus meant. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, and beginning in verse 10 through verse 13, look what it says. And unto the married, Paul's writing to the married, he says, I command. He says, yet not I, but the Lord. Well, where's he getting the Lord's commandment from? What we've already read. So he says, I command, but this is the Lord's commandment. And what does he say? Pretty clear. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Don't divorce. Verse 11, but, and if she depart, it might happen for whatever reason. He says, but if that does happen, what does he say? Let her remain what? Unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. He might have been. Somebody was beating her. He's saying, even if that's the case and you have to leave, you remain unmarried. And maybe you can work things out and be reconciled is what he's saying there, right? Or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. Verse 12, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife that believes not. So here you have a believing brother and an unbelieving wife, and she be pleased to dwell with him. He says, well, then don't put her away. Don't put her away just because she's unsaved. 
In verse 13, and the woman, vice versa, the woman which has an husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So here has been the consistent message. So we've looked at all the, the verses, pretty much. Got a few more to look at here that pertain to divorce and remarriage out of the lips of Jesus. And what has been the consistent message? Man is not to separate what God has joined together. That's the first thing, isn't it? And the second thing is, whoever divorces one person, how many times have we heard that, and marries another person does what? Commits adultery. It's been clear. So if Matthew 19 is the exception that all should know, then I think Paul, why doesn't he have it in here? Why doesn't he have it in here in 1 Corinthians 7? I think that would be the place to put it. But instead, what he has written in 1 Corinthians 7 agrees with what is written explicitly in Mark 10 and Luke 16. And I believe also, I don't think it disagrees with what's written in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Because look what we have here, verse 10. He says at the end of verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 7, let not the wife depart from her husband. And at the end of verse 11, let not the husband put away his wife. In verse 12, let him not put her away. And at the end of verse 13, let her not leave him. And so four times there, Paul says not to divorce your spouse. Okay, so where do they get the desertion clause? That's over in verse 15. If you look there in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. He says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So, I mean, some people have taken that, and I don't want to have to get into bog down to all the Greek and what the Greek word for loose and bondage and all that means. So people have taken that. He's not in bondage in the sense that if the unbelieving departs, you're free to remarry. Well, how do you get that out of that unless you're looking for a loophole? I mean, before I ever heard any teaching and I read that, I mean, to me, that's clearly saying that, you know, you're not to put them away. You're not to leave. But if they decide they're going to leave and divorce you, you're not to fight them. Just you can't help that. You can't help what they're doing. You say, just don't get in some big fight over it, some big court case or whatever. And that's why he says you're not under bondage. And that's why he ends that verse 15 by saying we haven't been called to resist and fight people, but to what? To peace. You can't help that. You can't help that they're doing that. So the third thing we want to that we brought out last week is remarriage is adultery if the spouse is still alive. Now that's, that's a pretty basic thing then. So what, what, what we need to see is that Jesus and Paul are in total agreement. So Jesus disallows divorce without any exception. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's Matthew 19.6, Mark 10.9. And we just read all of the places here where Paul says, like in verse 10, look at it again, let not the wife depart from her husband. In verse 11, let not the husband put away his wife. Verse 12, let him not put her away. We just looked at him, but we'll look at him again. And let her not, verse 13, at the end of that, leave him. So they're in total agreement. There is no disagreement there. I'm kind of building a case. I'm maybe not the greatest lawyer in the world, but trying to build a case here, right? So understanding, though, that divorce may occur, Jesus prohibits remarriage after divorce. So he says, Matthew 5, 32, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. And all of that is in the present tense. 
He doesn't say has committed adultery. He's saying he commits adultery in the present tense. So you divorce somebody and you marry and you go and marry someone else. You are committing adultery when that would stop. I don't know. Because I know some people that even hold to this permanence view, they're like, well, it's not ongoing adultery. I don't understand that. And they'll say, well, and they even hold to the fact that there is a one flesh relationship started with your first and only wife. But then they will say somehow if you get divorced and remarried, there's a second one flesh relationship started. I'm like, I don't understand. That that doesn't compute with my brain. Because what happens is they're, they're trying to deal with the whole thing about, well, what do you do if you're in that situation? They don't want to say you're in continuous adultery, that it just occurs. I don't know when it occurs, honestly. I had to write a paper on it. That's what I put in my paper. Well, I don't understand when this present tense adultery occurs and when it stops. <laughs> I mean, seems like it would be ongoing to me. If you have a one flesh relationship that is indissoluble, how, how can it ever be dissolved? How do you start another one? I don't get that. Two one flesh relationships seems kind of contradictory to me. But anyways, uh, in Luke 16, we've already read this, but I'll quote it to you. Jesus says, whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits present tense adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Mark 10, we've read it. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. And Paul understood what Jesus was saying. And that's why we have here, and look again, 1 Corinthians 7, we should still be there, verse 11. But, and if she depart, let her remain, what? Unmarried, it's clear. Or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So we're in 1 Corinthians 7. There is only one exception that is ever given to the non-remarriage rule. And that exception is... Not a vocal crowd tonight, are we? It's death. I knew, I knew you all knew it. But anyways, so if you look over in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 39 to 40, just trying to raise a little excitement here in the house. It's all right. All right, so we look here in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-nine. It says, The wife is bound by the law... As long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. So he clearly says there that a wife, he's saying it again, isn't he? How can it be any clearer? The wife is bound by the law. It's not like it's nullified as long as her husband is alive. You can't do it, right? The only way you can get unbound, the only way that glue is unstuck, the gorilla, supernatural gorilla glue, is by what? Death. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So, and if you would then, we'll leave 1 Corinthians 7 and turn back to Romans 7. Now, Paul in Romans 7 is not really, the context is he's not dealing with divorce and remarriage, but yet what he says is still true concerning divorce and remarriage. So, Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Romans 7, 2 and 3, for the woman which has an husband, says the same thing he said over in 1 Corinthians 7 where he actually was dealing with divorce and remarriage in context. The woman which has an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, what is she called? 
an adulteress. I'm sorry. I, I know that's tough for some people. I really would be. I'm, praise God, I'm not in that situation. But that, it's tough. But that's what it says. It says, but if her husband be dead, then she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress. So until he dies, I would say reading that, that's what you would be called. <laughs> Though she be married to another man. I mean, that's just what it says. I'm just reading what, it wrote, what he wrote there. So what about the exception clauses that we have? The two exception clauses in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. So if you would turn back to uh, Matthew 19, 9, please. Matthew 19, 9. So that Matthew 19, 9, and we'll read it. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whosoever... Whoso marrieth her which is put away does commit adultery. And I'm saying in both places, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, the except does mean except. I mean, that's literally what it's saying. So it doesn't mean anything other than except, but it does mean except. And that is the one text that is appealed to, the one text, as an exception that would allow for divorce and especially remarriage. So you took, if that verse didn't happen to be in the Bible... There'd be no justification biblically for remarriage, and it would be beyond an argument that it's clearly prohibited. So this one verse is, in a sense, the key sticking verse. So here's the problem. And you may want to write this down. There are six verses that clearly and without exception prohibit divorce. Matthew 19.6, Mark 10.9, 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Clearly prohibit divorce without any exceptions. There's five verses that prohibit remarriage after divorce. Matthew 5, 32b, the second part of that verse. Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. Luke 16, 18. Romans 7, 3. We just read that. And 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. So here's the thing. Mark records, so I'm, like I said, I'm building a case here. Mark records the same event when the Pharisees confront Jesus about divorce and remarriage. And yet, in Mark's account, there is no exception clause. None is in there. Luke's account of divorce and remarriage has no exception clause. Paul doesn't even hint at an exception clause, and he takes a whole chapter to address the topic of divorce and remarriage. There is no exception clause found in there at all. When he's writing to the Corinthians. The other thing is, almost all commentators will generally agree that Matthew 19, 9 is very difficult to interpret. And I'm saying... I hadn't done this lately. I did this years back. I went through all the Greek. I went through this guy's getting it. I've studied all that Greek and how it's put together in the sentence structure and what's modifying what and how that could have been put together this way and the other. It's where your head starts hurting. And the bottom line is its wording is ambiguous. And the way ambiguous means it's hard to get a handle on in some ways. Five out of seven biblical scholars would affirm. So there's what I meant to say first is there are seven historical different viewpoints of how that verse, Matthew 19, 9, can be translated. Seven with scholars. 
And these aren't guys trying to, not all of them are the best scholars, but <laughs> they're not necessarily trying to explain anything away, all of them. But five out of the seven would affirm a no-divorce understanding of that verse. Five out of the seven. Six out of the seven would say there is no remarriage in that verse. Six out of the seven. The only one of the seven historical interpretations permits both divorce and remarriage. It just so happens it's the most popular one. But still, it is just one. But here's the thing. (laughs) The issue is this. Should one verse that is the most difficult verse to understand be used to interpret all the other verses? Because that violates, what that does is that violates one of the most basic rules of biblical interpretation. And so whenever you have a verse that is not clear, you don't use that verse to try to interpret all the other ones that are. You do it the other way around. You'll say, well, this is clear, this is clear, this is clear. Now this one isn't clear. So how do do these fit in with this rather than taking that one and color everything else with it? which is typically what happens, not the other way around. So I'll say what I believe is going on here with Matthew 19.9. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, have, I have changed what I've thought about things on this. So because I'm not going to be throwing a curveball at you all, I basically would land where Brother Hamilton's landed. But there was a time I'm saying, I'm just taking that exception clause. I'm saying it does say except for fornication. And I'm saying you can't act like it doesn't say that. That was kind of how I'd be looking at that. I wouldn't, whatever. I'm just thinking I had to be honest with what I was seeing for myself. And I've just gone over this more and more. And the more I look at it, I'm thinking I totally agree with this betrothal view, which is what we're going to talk about. So Matthew 19, 9 it seems that the one exception is for fornication that allows for divorce. And that's the Greek word, we've all heard this before, pornea. Get our word, English word, pornography. So here's the thing. Most commentators and teachers that you read that hold to that third Erasmian view, yes for adultery, they interpret that word pornea to be adultery. Okay? So there's another word for adultery though, moikeia. So there's three places in the Gospel of Matthew where he uses pornea and moikeia. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and he lists what comes out of the heart. He has them side by side, adultery and fornication, Matthew 15, 19. The thing is, he doesn't ever mix the two words up. So Matthew seems to use the word fornication in its normal meaning. And normally the word pornea, fornication, is for premarital sex or incest. So if you look over in Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, when that guy's got his father's wife having sexual relations, he says that's incest. He calls it fornication, incest, right? But the word for adultery is used for marital infidelity. And that's what everybody wants to make that fornication mean. Well, the bottom line is Matthew, when he's talking about marital infidelity, uses the word adultery, or he would use the word adultery. So I don't believe that Jesus here is using porneia or fornication to refer to marital infidelity, but to a special kind of premarital sexual immorality that could occur during the betrothal period. So that's what Brother Hamilton has traditionally taught. And I'm not standing up here just because he taught it. Because to me, he taught it and it's the truth. That's fine. But aren't we interested in what the Bible teaches no matter who teaches it? Honestly, (laughs) I mean, 
I believe he had, had this right. So here's the thing, betrothal, because maybe some people weren't here. I don't know how long it's been since he taught it, taught it several times when I was here. So for the sake of some that maybe are new or that never heard it because they were too young. So betrothal in first century Israel, it was similar to our, similar to our engagement period prior to marriage. So what do we do? Today, we called engaged couples a fiancé. And even though there's an extra E added on for the girl, they are both pronounced the same in the French, fiancé. You don't have a fiancé and a fiancé. They're both fiancé right then. All right. Now, that's what we have today. But back then, in that day, they were called what? Husband and wife. Now, you don't call anybody that's engaged husband and wife. You better not. If you're acting like a husband and wife, you all need to repent. Is what you would say, right? So they called them husband and wife, though they had not had the marriage ceremony. Two things had never happened. They hadn't had the marriage ceremony, and they hadn't had marital relations. Let's put it that way, right? So the thing is, though, in first century Israel, in that culture, betrothal was a legally binding contract with financial obligations. And so because of that, you had to have a formal divorce. It was called a divorce. You literally had to have one. And so the most common reason for that divorce was because one of the two partners discovered the other one was involved in fornication. That was the most common reason that that would take place. And I don't want to get bogged down into how, how that would take place, but it would. But if you would, we can see what's being, what I'm talking about here. If you would turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 1. And it says there, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then Joseph, what does it say? Her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So they're called husband and wife. We see that there at the beginning of verse 19. It says, then Joseph, her husband. And at the end of verse 20, take unto thee Mary thy wife. In verse 18, when it says there at the beginning of verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused. That is the word for betrothed. Pledged in marriage. And that word is also used, we don't have to turn to it, but it's also used in Luke chapter 2, verse 5. And so Joseph takes Mary. She, she's this big riding on a donkey to Bethlehem, right? Because they got to do their, the census or whatever. He takes her there for that to Bethlehem. And it says in Luke 2, 5 that to be taxed, he took her to Bethlehem to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. So they're going there, and she's big time showing, but they are not still officially married. They are still betrothed. I think that would probably start a few rumors, wouldn't it? Used to around our culture, not anymore. But that's the way it was. So in Jewish culture, they're married in every sense of the word. The only exceptions being they haven't had the final ceremony, and they haven't had the marriage consummated, right? So... Because of that, we can under understand if they're going to dissolve a betrothal, that would have to be called a divorce. And so the sin that Joseph thought Mary was guilty of, did he think she was guilty of adultery? 
he thought she was guilty of what? Pornea, fornication. And that's the same thing the Jews thought because they couldn't hide the fact that here they are, husband and wife, never had the ceremony. Everybody would have known that, right? But here she is sticking out nine months pregnant. And so that would have been the rumor going around. And in John 8, 41, when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, they said, no, we be not born of fornication. It's a slam on him. Because that was, they didn't believe in the virgin birth that happened. And they thought he was born of fornication. She committed fornication. Like I said, there she is riding on the donkey on Christmas morning, nine months pregnant. And there had been no ceremony taking place. And that's what went around about him, right? And until that angel appeared to Joseph, he thought something fishy was going on too, didn't he? So adultery can only occur in a consummated marriage, and that didn't happen with Joseph and Mary. But Joseph knew something. So he knew, according to the existing Jewish law, that he not only had the right to divorce her, but that he was expected to do so. So by the time Jesus, by the time Jesus came on the scene, okay, they have a law. If you want to read it in Deuteronomy 22, 21, if a betrothal's taken place and there's ways, I don't want to get into that mixed come, that they could prove that she wasn't a virgin anymore, then it was the death penalty. So by the time of Jesus' day, they had done away with the death penalty, and instead they had enacted this law where you divorce the person or put them away, a legal termination. So in verse 19, what does it say there? It said, then Joseph, her husband, he was what? It says he was a just man. Just. He's going to do what the law said. He was going to be a righteous man, but he was not just a just man. He was also a compassionate man. And that's why we have at the second part of verse 19, and not willing to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away privily. Right? And so that's what I think happened there. And Jesus knew that. That a just man in Jewish culture would divorce a betrothed wife if she had committed fornication. That wasn't an unrighteous thing to do. And Jesus knew that. And so he's saying, hey, that's why he added that exception clause. Because I don't want you to think what was written in Matthew or what Joseph did. There was some unrighteousness in that. He did not divorce somebody that he had become one flesh. It hadn't been fulfilled. They had never come together. Remember we talked last week? There's three things that have to happen. For that marriage, indissoluble marriage union to take place. And one of them is they have to come together physically. I had it never happened. And so until that happened, God doesn't look at that as being that one flesh union. It hasn't taken place yet. And so Jesus isn't going to make that a sin. And that's what we have going on there. He wasn't going to allow, allow divorce in the case of adultery. But in cases where it's just a betrothal agreement's been violated, he's saying that is the pornea, and that's the exception that I believe he's given there. The other thing we need to think about is Matthew is the only gospel writer to include Joseph's intention to marry Mary, to get married to Mary, right? And he's also the only, because of that, and he talks about all of what happened there, it's the only gospel, he's also the only one to include the exception clause, right? So if it wasn't there, if he didn't have that exception clause there, and I believe Jesus really said it. I don't think Matthew made it up <laughs> just to make it look good, right? But if it wasn't there, it would seem that Jesus was prohibiting an action which Matthew said was just. And I believe Jesus would have believed it was just too. So we have to remember who's Matthew writing to. So these letters are written. They're not just written in a general sense. Who's Matthew writing to? 
mainly a Jewish audience, right? And who are Luke and Mark writing to? Gentiles. And so here's the thing, what we tend to do, and this was my problem, is we tend to read the Bible through our 21st century American culture glasses. And that's where you're going to go wrong. We've got to read the Bible and try to understand, and that's where books and commentaries will sometimes help you understand how that culture thought, right? Because we don't have betrothal laws here, do we? that you have to get divorced from our engagement. You get out of an engagement, nobody thinks anything of it. Depending on who it is, it might make the news, but nobody's going to think that was any kind of a sin or anything wrong. So I'm saying, you know, first century Jews, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that was men. I'm saying, we don't want to see that after the service here, right? A handshake, a fist pump. I mean, if you want to hug, okay. But don't even let that get out of hand, right? So that's the thing, right? So Mark and Luke are writing to Gentiles. Who's Paul writing to? Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 7. That's a Gentile church there. Those people wouldn't have known those betrothal laws. They don't need to have those exceptions. Right? But the Jews would understand, and especially first century Jews. We're kind of reading their letter, so to speak. It, it, It works for us, but that's what's going on. So I believe that's what's the situation with the exception clauses. I don't believe there are exceptions in the sense that they have been understood, in the sense that that Erasmian view understands it. So like I said, our church has traditionally held to the permanence view of marriage, and I don't see any reason to change it because it's what the Bible teaches. That's what I believe. And actually, <laughs> I was surprised to find this view is more commonly believed than I would have thought. So when I went to the seminary and I took my marriage whatever they called it, marriage class. The guy there taught the betrothal view. I'm like, wow. I told him, I said, man, I never thought, I didn't think anybody outside of our church much believed that. And that's what they taught down there at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then I had one of my other classmates that I became friends with. He said one day, he says, well, my dad's written a few books. And I'm like, okay. He said, I'd like to give them to you. Well, one of the books was called The Permanence of Marriage and believes in that same permanence of marriage view. I'm like, wow. I was surprised about that too. And so there's many Bible scholars that hold that view. It's just not a widely held view, and we understand why, isn't it? It can be a hard word. But the thing is, with that view, for me, so I believe when you have the truth that all of the pieces of the puzzles will come together, and you're not having to strain to make them work. Because honestly, other things for me, when I wasn't holding to that view, I was straining trying to make things work. But with this view, I think it all works. So for one thing, you do not have Matthew contradicting Mark, Luke, and Paul, what they wrote. And it answers the question of why was pornea used instead of moikeia, the word for adultery. And it also explains why there is no contradictions between Joseph being a just man and Jesus saying that all divorce results in adultery. And it also explains, fourthly, why the disciples were so shocked when he said what he said in Matthew 19. If you would just go back there, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 9 to 12, says this, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. Whoso marrieth her which is put away does commit adultery. And his disciples said unto him, well, if that's the case of the man, is so with his wife, it's good to not marry. Here's the thing. If Jesus would have just been repeating what they understood, the, even the conservative rabbis, the Pharisees, what 
Moses said in Matthew 24 that you could be divorced. They interpreted that way. You could be divorced for sexual impurities or adultery. If, he had just, if that's all he was saying was the same as them, then they would not, the disciples wouldn't have reacted the way they reacted. And that's in essence what you have here with that second view. But instead, they're like, wait, if that's the case, it's good not to marry. And Jesus answered them, all men can't receive this saying. Save them to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which are so born from their mother's womb, some eunuchs which are made eunuchs of men, there are some eunuchs which had to make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now why could that possibly be? Their wife left them. Something happened to where they are divorced for whatever reason and they cannot remarry somebody. So for the sake of what the word says, in a sense you could say they're making themselves eunuch. So he's saying if you're single because of the word of God, you know what that's telling me what he's saying there, though? This is why you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But through the grace and power of God, he will enable you to remain single for all of your earthly life. Because people want to say, oh, that's unreasonable. He would never do that. Well, what did he, that's what we just read, didn't we? In some cases, that's going to be the case, and God will give you the grace to do it. Because you tell me what should be harder. Some 40-year-old guy, his wife left him, or 50, when his hormones are kind of winding down, versus some 20-year-old guy that's not married yet, he's better control himself just like he's never, you know what I'm saying? That's going to be a lot tougher than that, those years. So to say God can't give you the grace, I'm saying young men that aren't married, they better be praying God gives them the grace, and they're not doing things they shouldn't be doing. Right? Amen. So, God's faithful. So what are the three main assertions of the Bible concerning marriage and divorce? I'm going to repeat my three points. That the one flesh union created by God in marriage is permanent until death. The second thing, it is never lawful to initiate a divorce. And thirdly, remarrying after divorce is an act of adultery if the spouse is still alive. So like I said, went through that thing. The patriotic view, they allowed for zero remarriage. And what's significant about that is we're far removed away from Koine Greek. We don't speak that Greek. We're studying. They're still finding things out. But those guys back then, they were right there. I mean, they would have known what that Greek meant, what the exception clause meant of anybody. And if there would have been an allowance for remarriage, that would have been as prevailing as it is today. And it wasn't. For all practical purposes, none of them allowed for any remarriage. And I could have read some quotes, but they were dogmatic about that. Some of them would say you could divorce in the case of adultery. And some of them, a few would even say it's required that you do that. But zero of them said it's, it's okay to remarry. And that is significant. So church fathers things, those guys, some of them would get off on some weird tangents pretty, pretty close after the apostles die. But when there's a total agreement like that, that's going to have you sit up in your seat. So that's not the Bible, is it? That's going to have you sit up in your seat and listen to what they're saying. And I think that is significant. So I know here, let me just say this in ending, and I know there's a lot more that could be said. I mean, I think Brother Hamilton would take four messages. I could see why, because there's a lot of things I haven't covered that could be covered in a little more detail. But here's the thing. So I know I'm not in that situation. And it's easy for me, in a sense, not really to stand up and preach and teach and for people to amen when you're not in that divorce and remarriage situation. So I know it is a tough situation for some people, whoever's hearing this. I don't I don't know who all would be involved with. 
but I will counsel anybody before you do anything. It's not something you're going to get just hearing it one time if it's the first time you've heard it. But if it was me, because the bottom line is, whoever we are and however we take this one way or another, whichever one of those views you think, oh, I think I like that number two view, I'm just saying we're all going to one day, aren't we all going to die? And we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we took his word. Jesus says, he told him, he said, I didn't come to judge you, but he said, there is something that's going to judge all of us one day. And what's that going to be? His word. It's not going to be each other, but one day his word and what we did with it. So if it was me before I did anything, I wouldn't be in a hurry one way or another. I would study and pray and wrestle with those scriptures. That's what I would do until I had a firm conviction that I saw it. I don't care what anybody else is doing. Now, we do that with healing, don't we? I don't expect anybody to do anything if they don't have it in their heart. That's dangerous. And why do you want to mess with somebody's life and put pressure on them to do something that's not in their heart? So you're not going to gain anything. So we're not going to gain anything by not being honest with what we see the word. We understand that, right? Just so you can go on living however. But on the other hand, I think we need to do things that are in our heart because I'm going to say I know of cases that for me, what's clear, what I taught is clear. I wouldn't be standing up here teaching it. Honestly, I wouldn't. And that's my that's what my conviction is. But I know people that I know are godly and they have honest convictions for where they at. They don't see it the way I would see it. And I'm saying I don't look at them and think you're going to go to hell because you don't see it the way I see it necessarily. Right. I mean, I had a friend of mine that he got so hung up on divorce and remarriage that he that's the first thing he'd say if he met you. Literally, are you divorced? I'm like, you can't start off talking to people like that. But he would. And man, he's guess what happened? You know how that came back to bite him? I, he's not married anymore. So you can't have an attitude towards, you know, we need to have our own convictions about things. The other thing is, though, I would say this, that the whole exception clause, an exception for adultery is so much the exception. Because that class I told you I took for marriage... And family, that's what it was called, marriage and family. The guy that taught that class, he's written many books, and he's a, I really like that class. He was a great guy. But he, he told us, he said, I've counseled hundreds, if not thousands of people in divorce, at least hundreds, in divorce and remarriage situations. And he told our class, he says, I'm going to tell you, everyone's all hung up on the exception clause and all that. He goes, I can't think of one. He said, there might have been one I forgot, but I can't think of one where that was the cause for the divorce. It's always something else. And so all the something else is, like I said, verses, uh, views two, three, four covers all the something else's, right? And he's saying it's almost never for that. It's always for all the other reasons that people in America get divorced. Like I said, the bottom line is we're all going to have to stand before the Lord one day. And if you would just turn, if you could just bear with me, turn to Romans 14 and we'll end with this. Romans 14. So I want to just say this as far as what is clear to you may not be clear, honestly clear to someone else. And I think that's what Romans 14 is talking about. And you need to do what is clear to your conscience one way or another, despite what anyone else is doing. 
So Romans 14, it says, he says, him that is weak in the faith, he says, receive you, receive him into your midst, but not to criticize their opinions or dispute with them over differing opinions. That's what he means, means by doubtful disputations. He says, for one believes that he may eat all things, another He's saying he's weak, but this is what he believes. He thinks all I can eat is herbs. I can't eat that pork sandwich that you eat. And so what does he say in verse 3? He says, don't let him that eats despise him that eats not. And vice versa, don't let him which eats not judge him that eats. So it works both ways, doesn't it? And he says, for God has received him. Verse 4, for who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. And I want to read the whole chapter, but look over in verse 10. He says, for why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set it not your brother? For we, this is what we've been talking about, we will all do what? We're all of us going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. He says, so then every one of us, each one of us in here shall give an account of himself to God. And let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. Let's be careful about this, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall on his brother's way. And look what he says here in verse 14. He says, I know something. Paul says, I know, and I'm also persuaded. He's saying, I'm convinced. I know this is what the Bible teaches. I'm not wondering about it. And look what he says, that there is nothing unclean in and of itself. So he's saying, I know for a fact that's the truth. But look what he goes on to say, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean. So he's saying that guy's wrong. I know he is. But to him that esteems anything to be unclean, he says to him, it is unclean. Right. So he's saying, I can clearly see what the truth is, but this person over here doesn't see it that way. And he needs to do what's on his conscience. If he, you know, he needs to be honest. You're not going to gain, like I said, I'm not going to gain anything by not being honest. And that's why he wrote down what he wrote in verse 22 and 23. He says, do you have faith? He says, have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. But he that doubts is damned if he eats. So the thing is, he's saying that person is doing something Paul had already said, I know. I'm not wondering. I'm convinced that you can eat anything. All foods are clean. But he's saying this guy here, he's doing something that in a sense, it's, it's lawful. Paul said, I know I can do it. It's lawful. He's not doing something unlawful. But in his mind, it is unlawful. It's a sin. And he's saying, and that guy does that even though really he's doing something that's not wrong. But in his mind, it's wrong. And what does he say? That person's damned that does that. Because why? He eats not of faith. He doesn't really believe it. He's, that's what I'm saying. You need to get whatever you do, whether it's healing, anything in here. Healing, divorce and remarriage, you need to do it because you clearly see it's right. Right? Because if you don't and you're just doing it because of what everybody else might think or because, well, I really respect the preacher. Don't respect me like that. Paul says he had respect for the Bereans who checked out what was said. Don't be lazy. Whether it's healing, divorce, you name it. Non-resistance. Have a gun, don't have a gun, but you better know what the Word says and then be convinced in your own heart and live that, right? For he that doubts is damned if he eats because he eats not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Amen? Amen, we're going to leave it at that.
Praise the Lord. All right, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the, the truth of your word. And sometimes, Lord, it seems to be a hard word, and I just ask you, Lord, that you'll give us all the grace to walk in it and to understand it and to see it and to have honest and pure hearts before you, Lord, because we know that one day, and it may be one day soon for some of us, we'll be standing before you and we'll have to give an account of ourselves and have to give an account of what we've done with your word. So I just ask you, Lord, for all of us here that you give us hearts that want to do your word, receive your word, those honest hearts you talk about in the parable of the soil. And not let that word, Lord, let us not allow that word to be choked with the cares of this life, but that we'll get in your word and let it grow in us and it will be like that tree planted by the rivers of water that everything we do will prosper, that you will bless us spiritually and in every way. I just ask that you'll do that for all of us here tonight, Father. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.